K-A-L-W. We'd move something and the whole greenhouse would fall down. When Philip Feimster bought Clement Nursery, the century-old property needed drastic repairs. I can't imagine doing anything else than this. I wouldn't ever go back. I wished I'd done this earlier in my career. Today, we hear how a former marketing clerk transformed a neighborhood business and himself. Plus, poet Adrienne Danielle Oliver shares how she navigates this society in a Black female body. So I had no awareness of being a quote-unquote Black body because I was just a body. You know, I was just love. We've got plants, poetry, and a lot more. I'm Hannah Baba, and this is Cross Currents. Today we begin with a new story from our series, At Work. We talk to people about their jobs and why they do them. I have a lot of pride in my work. How do you do it? Sprays, masks, gloves. I'm with the Swamp Team. Hi, my friends, and how are you? It's nice now with technology. Pandora's box has been opened. It's a beautiful way to make your living, but it's more work than I ever imagined. Philip Feimster left the corporate world to rebuild a crumbling neighborhood shop. Restoring the business did more than transform Clement Nursery. It transformed the lives of Philip and his employees. KLW's Kyrie Nashim brings us his story. Philip Feimster always had a passion for gardening. But for three decades, he worked in marketing with some big-name companies. I would wake up in the morning and I would go to a company and I would do different things that weren't anything about myself. And then I would come home and have a little bit of time to live my other life. About 10 years ago, he was questioning his life's direction. I was at a place in my life where I felt like change was necessary. I didn't feel the ability to really drive that. I was asking the universe every day, what should I do? What am I going to do next? I'm actually tearing up a little bit because I didn't know what to do. I felt defined by my career in marketing but it was time for something different. Philip's pain was obvious. Even his neighbors noticed, including the previous owners of a nursery in the Richmond district. Over time, small talk between neighbors developed into something more. It wasn't just, you know, hey, how you doing? But we started really talking, and I mentioned the fact that I was grappling with what to do. They said, we're trying to get rid of a plant nursery. Does that sound interesting? You looks like you really love gardening. And something in his spirit felt drawn to the idea. Now, he knew the basics of plant care. But I didn't really understand a lot about plant nature and taxonomy. And initially, he was terrified by the very thought of owning the dwindling business. But at the same time, Philip saw the potential to transform Clement Nursery entirely. This is when he says the universe responded. It told him that restoring the nursery was what he needed to do. And I think it's clandestine. I don't think this was me sitting down thinking, okay, I want to do this. It just evolved. Visiting Clement Nursery today, you'll be greeted by Opal, the nursery's adopted rescue dog. As you walk through the gates, you'll quickly become lost within this thriving collection of plants from across the globe. New gardeners and veterans alike gather here to discover new species, improve their growing skills, and make new connections. 
when Philip first became owner, the nursery was pretty run down. Restoring the old buildings on the property presented a huge challenge. Well, some of them go back to like 1910. There's an old hay barn up front. The nursery had been a dairy farm called Old City Park Farm. The original farmhouse is now a small cottage. The nursery's retail space was initially an old hay barn. We're sitting in what I think used to be the cookhouse. Philip estimated the repairs would cost around $10,000. But dry rot often caused the greenhouse to collapse. And while doing renovations in the cookhouse, a huge chasm was discovered. Philip eventually realized it was a hidden underground cellar. It was also full of raccoons. Yeah, we sealed it up. Using mostly reclaimed materials. 47 shower doors are the ceiling if you look up in there that's studded with ones with pink flamingos on them. These eccentric repairs became part of the nursery's appeal. Clement Nursery is a calming, intimate jungle. A mixture of local and exotic plants climb towards the sun, painting the space in vibrant colors. Gardening fountains, statues, and other vintage objects give the nursery character. The space is nurtured by Philip's creative vision. He gets inspired by the nursery's location. This is four blocks from Baker Beach, which means I'm two blocks from the Presidio. You're just part of nature out here. It's on the edge of the city. It's on the edge of the continent. The place also shines from Philip's desire to help people learn. We'll send people home with a cactus, and they'll come back six months later, and it's still alive and hasn't died. And they felt like, okay, I can take on something that's a little bit more challenging than that. The generosity and openness that Philip shows to his customers extends to his staff as well. Like Philip, Letty Samante came to the nursery from another field, movie set painting. If you're working on a TV show or a film, you really just get burned out. It wasn't a healthy place anymore. She was always into gardening. Her mother and grandmother taught her the tradition. She explored it more deeply throughout the pandemic. My show that I binged the most during the pandemic was a show called Gardener's Worlds. It's a British gardening show, and it was just really helpful. And I realized I was burned out with my old job, and I just, I wanted to do this. And Philip was nice enough to take me on. <laughs> Letty says working at Clement Nursery has caused a huge uplift in her mood. You're not tired all the time, or if you are tired, it's because you've done something that you wanted to do as opposed to something that you had to do. It's much healthier. Philip has nurtured an environment that encourages growth, both for plants and for people. We all love working with each other, so I think that really helps too. I think it's very easy for people to feel alone nowadays, but you just have to believe that you're not. And if you seek it, you'll find it. Right, right. <laughs> she gets behind her like, like you're fighting and she's pulling her. Finding and growing connections with people. That's been more important for Philip Feimster than growing plants. The uh, biggest surprise I've taken over was just being a merchant. I think that supersedes whatever the company does, but just being part of a neighborhood has been the most beautiful thing I've experienced. In his 10 years owning the nursery, Philip's seen a lot of the same people. Well, I see couples that get married and all of a sudden they've got kids and you know, I've been here for 10 years. I'm having like really intelligent conversations with their offspring. He's also somewhat of a local celebrity. I can't go to the park without somebody yelling out either my name or, hey, plant guy. People know what I do, which is 
really interesting. You know, no one in my other career ever saw me at a park and said, didn't you work on that Polaroid campaign? Philip in the nursery became even more popular because of COVID. We ended up being part of this tiny little group of things that people could do for a year. People were so cloistered at home. There weren't that many places that were open. Our business went through the roof. It was phenomenal. What fascinated Philip was the amount of people who specifically came in order to grow food, but couldn't explain why they desired to. For some reason, they were compelled to grow food at home. Generations ago, generations before that, everybody grew their food. It's just part of our DNA. It's how we survived, and we've stepped away from that to a great extent in the way that society works now. I think I was seeing people being homebound and in a small space, feeling the need, for some reason, whatever, to utilize that space to their benefit. In his previous career, Philip felt like he had to suppress his spirit. But now... For the first time in my life, when I took the nursery over, everything was symbiotic. There wasn't a separation of the two. I just kind of feel like I'm a nurseryman now. No wardrobe change from home to here. I kind of do the same things in both places. If you walk around the nursery, it's really funky. It's big creative expression. This is what my home looks like. This is what my home garden looks like. Life is this homogeny of when I'm awake, this is what I'm doing. So what's Philip's advice for people feeling stuck? Ask for guidance, and more importantly, listen. In Philip's case, the answer changed many lives and the life of a neighborhood business. In San Francisco, I'm Kyrie Nashim for Cross Currents. Kyrie is a fellow in our Audio Academy, and training is at the heart of the KELW newsroom. So we wanted to let you know that applications actually just opened for our summer journalism program. It's a three and a half month long intensive, and it's tuition free. If you want to learn how to tell sound rich audio features, find all the details at KELW.org. This is Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. We're going to switch gears now to talk health. Uterine fibroids affect Black women in a substantial way. The non-cancerous tumors can cause pelvic pain and heavy menstrual bleeding. 80% of Black women develop fibroids by the age of 50. That's about three times more than white women, according to the National Institutes of Health. Professor Adrienne Danielle Oliver expresses her challenges with fibroids through her writing. In her poetry collection, The Body Has Memory, Adrienne reflects on the experiences of her Black female body from her home state of Arkansas to the Bay Area. She spoke with KLW's Janae Darden. What inspired you to teach? I love to write so much. And hearing people say that they hate it or that they're afraid of it really was wearing on my heart. And I wanted to try to do something 
to make a change and to show people what a gift writing could be. And for me, teaching writing was an accessible way to do that because people have to obey. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know, they're there to learn how to write. And so, but I could do it with just the utmost love and compassion that I can. And hopefully my goal is by the end of the semester for people who are afraid of writing or really hesitant about it, that they have a little bit more comfort about writing. Your book, The Body, has memory. <laughs> right. We're going to go from heart to the full body. How do you view the Black body now after writing this book? You know what? Before writing this book, I didn't. I grew up in such a loving Black community, very kind of insulated from white racism. And I mean, the South is kind of like that because we... Now I can see this in hindsight as an adult, but as a child, I didn't know that what my community was doing was protecting me from that legacy of racism in the South. And I used to wonder why, you know, my family, we all hung together. It's like tribe. But now I understand that. So I had no awareness of being a quote unquote black body because I was just a body. You know, I was just loved. I didn't, there was no othering because I was just insulated in that loving community. And it wasn't until I went to college, actually, because I went to a predominantly white institution and lived on campus in the dorms with, you know, <laughs> all the white folks that I saw, all of a sudden felt like, oh, wow, I'm a Black body. And that was a culture shock that I've been processing since, you know, I was 18 through 20. How old are you when you graduate from undergrad? 21, whatever. Yeah, 21, 22. Yeah, yeah. 21, 22. And I mean, when I entered the workforce as a young Black woman, as a writer, and I was a writer for the University of Arkansas for medical sciences, a lot of doctors, we were talking about doctors, and that experience of people saying, wow, this story you wrote about me is so good, or you're so articulate, or being surprised, you know, that I could write. So I started having all these experiences in the workplace throughout my 20s and 30s and, you know, being a patient. And I write about that in the medical industry, medical industrial complex, feeling more and more that Blackness that America puts on my body. I didn't put it on my body because I was just born a body. But America definitely likes to categorize and stamp our bodies. You have another book out where you go deep into fibroids. Right. And I know you do mention fibroids in this book. And I have fibroids. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked about this. Mm -hmm. The University of Michigan reports nearly a quarter of Black women between 18 and 30 have fibroids. Mm. For white women in that age bracket, it's 6%. And by age 35, 60% of Black women have fibroids. About 35. That is just, that's too young, too much. Why did you write about fibroids? And I'm glad you wrote about fibroids mm -hmm. because there's so much research that needs to be done about why right. we have fibroids much more than other, than other women. Right. Just. It could be excruciating. It could be really, yeah. it really impacts your quality of life. And that's why I wanted to write about it because... I don't think there's enough research being done 
And I would always participate in the, I mean, I'm not knocking Brett's cancer research, but I would participate in a Susan G. Komen, you know, breast cancer walk and, you know, donate and support and all of that. And I thought to myself, why can't we have this same amount of fervor around fibroids research or uterine health research? Fibroids, it is something that impacts all women. And I think it's because it mostly impacts Black women. And I just wanted to speak out on that because I think that Black women carry the heaviest heartbreak. How do you view the Black body now after writing this book? Oh, my goodness. That's a deep question. (laughs) I would say that now, through the process of writing this book, it really taught me that I see the Black body as sacred. I really see it as an altar, like each of our Black bodies is an altar to uplift, to praise, to adorn and shower with love, because we don't really get that. That was poet Adrian Danielle Oliver speaking with KELW's Janae Darden. That interview was produced with help from Porfirio Rangel. Adrian's book is The Body Has Memories. It's available from Nomadic Press. We have a longer version of that conversation at KELW.org. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hannah Baba. We're headed to Oakland for our next piece. It's about a kid learning to love his hair. It's an excerpt from the Stoop podcast hosted by me and Leela Day. We're going to Mega Browns. It's a barber shop on Jefferson Street where we'll meet Damien, the lead barber, and author Robert Lou Trujillo, who took his son there to do something very special, get his first flat top. A great haircut, man. It's, it's the best two weeks of your life. <laughs> So that's Damien Hunter. He's the owner of Mega Browns. And when you look around, it pretty much looks like a barbershop. There's chairs and clippers, mirrors. But then over there in the corner, you see a big nook and it's full of children's books. Um, Kids come in with their dads or moms, mostly their dads, it's the barbershop. So they come in, they grab a book and they get their hair cut. And if they like the book, they're allowed to actually take it home, except for three books. There are three books in particular that cannot leave the shop. Uh, One, which is my daughter's favorite, my three-year-old. Nobody notices Minerva. Yeah, this book is is beautiful. And uh, The Superhero and the Barber of Doom, which is one of my favorites by John Rucco, and then for Kwan's First Flat Top. Verkan's first flat top. Oh, I like that one. That one sounds good. Mm-hmm. It's by Robert Lou Trujillo. He's been Damien's client for the past seven years, and it's in this shop that he got the inspiration 
to write his children's book about his son getting his first flat top right here. My name is Furkan Moreno. I'm 10 years old and I've always had really curly hair. My mom and dad let me grow my hair out as long as I want. I just have to comb it. But I decided I want to cut my hair a different way. Okay, so we're at Mega Brown's Barbershop, one of the pillar barbershops of Oakland in downtown Oakland, uh, right near uh, the New Parish, right near, uh, what's the name of that other club? My name is Robert Luther Hill. I'm an author and illustrator. I did the book for Khan's First Flat Top. Well, when I was about nine or ten, that's when I got my first flat top. And I went to the barbershop. This was in Richmond, California at the time. I went to the barbershop and I got it. And uh, I was... I wanted to get it really bad. I was really excited about it, but I was also super nervous. And so when I got to school, it's like, oh, they're gonna clown me, or they're gonna talk mess. I sold tapes every day. Me and Freddie B. Been famous since 1983. Well, the thing that I think of at the time was probably the movie Juice. Like in 1992, like you know, Q, the main character, Omar Epps, had like a, a short flat top with some lines. Uh, Tupac had a step uh, flat top. Uh, there, were, I think uh, the other character, Steel, also had a flat top too. So there was tons of people. That was like an in thing at the time. So like, but um, as I began working on the book, and I mean the book was like a four-year-long process, there were kids that were starting to bring it back. So I look out my window in my block, and I'm starting to see kids with flat tops again. It's not exactly the same as it was during like the '90s or the kid and play days, but it's starting to make a comeback with some kids. When I got to the barbershop, I told Mr. Wallace I wanted to get a flat top. I was still a bit nervous about how to get it cut, so I asked him to show me some pictures of people's hairstyles. When my son was born, I was just kind of frustrated by the fact that there were not any books about kids like him that looked like him or that were about just everyday stories. They were all like historical things, like in a lot of books about slavery and things like that. And I was like, I don't, not that those books won't get read to him, but I want something that's just like an everyday life thing. So like, what could be more normal than like going to get a haircut? Daddy? Yes, baby. Remember the way Marcus got his haircut last year? That's called a flat top. I want to get my haircut like that. Can we do that today? Sure, we can do that today. So my son, I mean, I don't know, like, as far as, like, complexions go, but he's, like, a brown-skinned boy, light-skinned. Um, he, when he grows his hair out, it's very, very curly, so he'll have, like, an afro. Um, and there are not many books like that about kids like him. Um, and I really fell back in love with reading uh, or I should say fell in love the first time with reading to him to read kids books to him and thought you know there's got to be more out there and I found that there wasn't and so I was like damn it I'm going to make them myself and that was you know 12 years ago and it took me that long to understand um, how to write them and how to illustrate them and like what the industry is like and how to make it as a business person as well as a creative um, but the story is based on him, like, you know, him going to get his haircut, and it's based on me going to get a haircut, and it's like a, a mixture of a lot of different people's experiences all into one. Um, and then in the, in the book, I don't put Oakland, I don't put New York or anything, I just wanted it to be like a kind of a generic city, so it could be anywhere, really. But it's, you know, an everyday thing, like just a father and son going to get a haircut. And that's another thing, there aren't too many books where it's like a father and son of color just interacting together, you know. At Abuelita's house on Saturdays, we make tortillas flat with our hands. Mmm, tortillas. 
Will my hair look flat like that? Tortillas are yummy, but no, it won't. So my mom's black, my dad's uh, mixed. He's Korean, Mexican, and Apache. My son, his mom was Mexican and Ecuadorian, so he has all of mine and his mom's. Gracias, papi, para llevarme a cortar mi primer corte de mesita. Part of the reason why the book is in Spanish and English is to serve as a doorway between the two. So for Afro-Latinos who are in, uh, I don't know, Panama or Cuba or whatever country, like, you may not get to see that many pictures of a kid who looks like you with uh, long hair and to have some pride in that and to say that this is okay. There's that aspect of it. Um, there's an aspect of, of Latinos because they are also not a monolith. They can be from white, black. Um, for them to see it and have some pride or understanding that there are Latinos who have hair like this and for them to understand it. And it's also for uh, black kids who don't necessarily know anyone who's Latino to understand that there are black folks who are Latino. Um, and for them, for kind of both to language-wise kind of understand each other and like learn a little bit of English or learn a, bit, a little bit of Spanish and kind of have more of a, a connection between them and like through that, having a conversation that, although some films and aspects of media are having it, I think it happens a lot more within places like a barbershop. When I got home, I told my daddy about my first day back at school. I told you it would look good, didn't I? Thank you, daddy, for getting me my first flat top. That was an excerpt from the Stoop podcast hosted by me and Leela Day. You can hear the full episode, My Child's Hair, at KELW.org. Today's Cross Currents team includes Mary Catherine O'Connor, Wendy Reyes, James Rollins, Ganadijo Johnson, Victor Tense, Shireen Adil, Lisa Morehouse, Marissa Ortega-Welch, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hanat Baba.